I'm Rob Trusinski. This is Salon of the Refused. A number of people have asked me, why Salon of the Refused? Why did you choose that name for this podcast and video series? It's an art history joke, but one with some serious points about how to change the culture. It's a reference to the Paris Salon of 1863. Now, the Parisian salons were a series of art exhibitions, annual art exhibitions held by the uh, Royal Society of Painting and Sculpture. After the French Revolution, they got rid of the royal part. The salons were extremely influential, not just in France, but internationally in the art world, because France was a trendsetter. And being admitted to the salons, having one of your paintings shown at this art exhibit, was a way of getting a seal of approval that you're a good artist, that you're a worthwhile artist. And furthermore, getting one of the prizes that were given out at the salons would be something that made your career as an artist. So it's a way of showing that you conformed to the consensus of the top authorities in the art establishment. Now, can you start to see some of the problems with this? You know, we have conformity, we have the establishment, we have authorities. The great thing about the French is they have a long tradition of government support for the arts. The terrible thing about the French is they have a long tradition of government support from the arts. And a couple things happen when you have government getting involved in supporting the arts. First thing is, he who pays the piper calls the tune. When you have government supporting the arts, it then takes on some, uh, there's a role of censorship and a role of propaganda. For example, when Napoleon was in charge of this and they were getting the uh, academy back together after the French Revolution, Napoleon had a guy he put in charge of the academy whose job was to make sure that artists knew if they were giving government, getting government support, that they knew they were expected to portray the emperor in an appropriately grandiose and heroic manner. But there's a problem that's less obvious than just the danger of censorship or propaganda. When you hire, when the government sets out to uh, provide funding for the arts, it has to hire somebody whose job is to figure out who to give that money to, who to support. So what you end up doing is they ended up creating a jury or a, a panel of respected artists of the time, people with good reputations, whose job was to decide who is a great artistic genius, who's a second-rate hack, and to give decide who to give that money to, uh, who to give the support to, and who to allow into the salons. But when you do that, this panel of artists, this jury, is going to give the awards to people who are carbon copies themselves, people who are clones of themselves, people who have the exact same outlook on what art is and what it ought to be. So you end up creating an establishment. And that brings us to the Paris Salon of 1863. Because the academic artists had two big notions on art that were being challenged by up-and-coming young artists of the time. Now, the first notion was the idea that in, in the style of the art, that it should be perfect, polished realism. And specifically polished realism, not any of these you know, hasty, brush, rough brush strokes that the Impressionists were starting to use. So that was being challenged by the, young, the, by the early Impressionists of the time. The other idea they had was about the subject matter of art. And that was the idea that art should be about an idealized, elevated subject matter. And that was being challenged by a school called the Realists. And the leader of the Realists was a painter called Gustave Courbet. And by what Courbet meant by realism wasn't realism in style, wasn't realism in, in realistically rendering objects. It was the idea of portraying real life, the man on the street or the woman on the street. 
and uh, uh, portraying washerwomen and peasants and workers. Uh, Courbet fancied himself uh, an anarchist and a socialist and a great man of the people who also liked to paint self-portraits of himself, showing what a great man he was. Courbet also painted female nudes in a way that was crudely sexual, and I'll let you look those up for yourself. The thing is, the academic ideals sound actually pretty good to my mind. Now, if you study art history, even if, if they even go back before Picasso, they'll probably portray the academy as small-minded and dogmatic, but their ideals actually have something to them. The problem is that they interpreted them extremely narrowly. So, for example, they had the view that the highest school of art, the best school of art, is what they called history painting. And you had to choose your subject matter from this sort of narrow prescribed list. You could take them from the Bible, you could take them from classical mythology, and you could take them from the great events of history. But what you couldn't do is portray the real world of the present day. That was considered vulgar and, and, and beneath an artist. And a good example of this is a painting that actually was one of the most highly regarded in the official salon of 1863. And it's a painting called The Birth of Venus by Alexander Cabanel. What you'll see in this painting is a beautiful nude woman, exquisitely rendered, leaning back somewhat unrealistically against a cresting wave. Uh, this is a reference to, of course, the ancient Greek and Roman myth about how Venus was born out of the sea foam of the shore. And what really strikes me, though, is that there's this congregation of cherubs above her. And I look at that and I think, is this 1863 or is it 1663? Everything in this painting has been done before. Botticelli painted The Birth of Venus in 1486. Everyone and his dog by this point has, has painted cherubs. So what you have is beautiful rendering skill, but the subject matter and the, the pose and everything is hackneyed. It's cliched. It's what Ayn Rand would have called secondhand. And it's ripe for challenge by rebellious young artists. But those artists had been shut out for years by the salons, and especially in the salon of 1863. In the salon of 1863, an unusually large number of submissions were rejected. And the rejected artists and their friends and patrons and supporters were very angry about that. They created a sort of a rebellion and they petitioned the emperor. Now, the French had an emperor again at this point, with a little diversion here. You know, the French tried, they had the Bourbon kings and that didn't work out. They tried a republic briefly and that didn't work out. They tried an emperor, that didn't work out. They went back to the Bourbon kings, it didn't work out again. And then they, by this point, by 1863, they decided, let's try the whole emperor thing again. Now, spoiler alert, it didn't work out. So Napoleon's nephew, Napoleon III, is now on the imperial throne, and he's actually pro-academy. He's in favor of the academy's position in his personal preferences, and he actually bought that Birth of Venus painting we just talked about. But he's also sensitive to public opinion. So he sees this complaint and now the disgruntled artists and the patrons and friends of the artists were disgruntled, all the intellectuals who are worked up about it. And he decides, who am I to go against the will of the people? He decides to give the go-ahead for another salon that's a collection just of the refused paintings from the regular salon. So it's a separate salon for all the rejected entries. It's called the Salon des Refusés or the Salon of the Refused. The most controversial painting there is probably Déjeuner sur l'herbe. I, I may have butchered the French, and I'm not even going to apologize about it. But it's Luncheon on the Grass by Edouard Monet. 
the painting shows two nude women, and that's not what's controversial about it because uh, the female nude was a staple of art at the time, and people have been doing it for hundreds of years. But typically they did it in an idealized, historical, mythological context that created a little bit of distance. What's radical about Manet's painting is two things. First, the nude woman in the front of the painting is looking directly at the viewer, you know, directly engaging the viewer with a sort of a frank sexuality that is shocking to the audience. So it's not distance, it's not idealized, it's not put safely into the past or into mythology. But the more controversial thing, the even more shocking thing, is that we can tell from the discarded clothes that are off to her side and from the clothes of the two men who are with her, the two clothed men who are with her, they're wearing contemporary clothes, clothes from the 1860s. So it's definitely not, it's pointedly not in the idealized past or in mythology. This is a real woman of the present day. The woman in the painting, by the way, is Victorine Miron, who was a... Uh, a model used by Manet and several of the other artists at the time. Uh, very beautiful, famously beautiful young woman. She was actually reputed at the time to be a courtesan or, or Manet's mistress or something like that, uh, which made the whole thing much more shocking. I actually, in doing some research on this, there's no actual evidence that was her role. And in fact, she later went on from being a, uh, an artist model to studying art herself and contributing some uh, paintings that were accepted by the salons. And then the real irony is that she favored the old-fashioned uh, academy style of painting. The other scandal in Manet's painting is the loose, the loose brushstrokes, the impressionist style. This may not seem radical at all or subversive at all to us today, although you could argue that it's, you know, the first step down a slippery slope that ends up with abstract expressionism and, you know, guys dripping blobs of paint randomly on a canvas and calling it art. Now, what's really interesting is what happened next. The exhibition of rejects, the Salon of the Refused, drew thousands of visitors. People came to cheer, some came to jeer, but it became the sensation of the year. And the important thing is, over the long run, it became far more important and far more influential than the official salon of 1863. Now, that isn't that interesting. It featured works by Manet, works by James McNeil Whistler, and other people who have become famous names in the world of art after that. But more important is it set a precedent for more salons of the refused. They actually used the same name and also for something they called an independent salon. So it... it was the first step for breaking the hold of an entrenched artistic establishment. Now I think you can begin to grasp some of the lessons for today. The lesson is that when a political orthodoxy is in control of art and ideas, the danger is not just that it will lead to censorship or propaganda, but it will also lead to the creation of a hidebound, uncreative, pedantic establishment. And that establishment may look invulnerable and unassailable from the outside, but it is vulnerable to falling to the sheer vitality of new and interesting and original ideas, which will seem all the more vital because they've been excluded for so long from discussion. Now, I might cite that in examples where of ideas that I disagree with. So I might cite that as an answer to the politically correct establishment of today. 
but I want you to notice that also applies to ideas that you might agree with. So for example, I happen to like the overall broad ideas of the French academic establishment. I think polished realism is better than impressionist brushstrokes. I think that an elevated idealized subject matter is better than a slice of life of the man in the gutter. But we should keep Cabanel's Birth of Venus in our minds here because it's an example of a work that ticks off all the boxes on a superficial list of rules about what's proper and appropriate, but still brings nothing interesting, new, and vital in terms of its ideas or its perspective on the world. So the lesson here, one of the lessons, is that ideas die when they become a dogma. Now you can begin to see why I'm taking Salon, the Salon of the Refused as the inspiration for this series. In French, the word salon just means room. So it referred to, in the art exhibitions, it referred to a giant room that you would fill with paintings and sculptures. But it was also used to refer to gatherings where you had intellectuals and philosophers would get together to discuss interesting new ideas. So the term salon also came to refer to a group of thinkers gathering together to have interesting conversations. And that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to seek out conversations with interesting intellectuals and specifically with those who are outside of today's politically correct, academically approved mainstream. Now, I'm not going to endorse or agree with the ideas of everyone I have on this show, but I'm going to seek out ideas that deserve to be more influential than those that are approved by today's establishment. So welcome to my Salon of the Refused. I hope that you understand what I'm trying to do here and that you will find the conversation stimulating. If you do, please subscribe to our video channel at YouTube, subscribe to our podcast channel, uh, and you can also find more ideas and analysis at the Trzinski Letter, trzinskiletter.com, and you can support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Salon of the Refused. I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon of the Refused. Thank you for listening.